it was a bit magical for me coming from a background in entertainment where the culture is extremely hierarchical and you are expected to spend at least five years being a PA, like running coffees and then mm -hmm. coming to tech where it's like as an intern, I could be leading a project and that's crazy. And they actually listen to me and like my opinion and intuition for better or worse. But I think that it definitely for a while until I had more like reps under my belt of projects I could point at and be like, hey, I did that actually. I'm yeah. not an imposter. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Seed to Harvest, a podcast hosted by me, Paige Van Doherty. I'm the founding partner behind Genius Ventures and author of Seed to Harvest, of the same name in this podcast, which is a children's book about venture. And on this podcast, I love exploring stories, tactics, and frameworks with investors and creators and founders. So I'm excited to have my dear Twitter friend, <laughs> Molly Milky. On today, Molly is the founding partner of Moth Fund. I'll let her go a bit into her intro, but welcome, Molly. I'm excited to have you I'm on. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Molly, and I'm the solo GP behind Moth Fund, which is a small pre-seed and seed venture fund that invests in exceptional people as early as possible across all sectors. And my background is a bit circuitous, but I explored entertainment and worked at a bunch of different tech companies and specialize in helping founders with storytelling. I love that. I feel like that's something we definitely have in common. So I found an old blog post that you had written and you shared some of your favorite questions to ask people. And I wanted to ask <laughs> you, the first one I was on that was where were you when you had the idea for your current thing? So where were you when mm -hmm. you had the idea for Moth Fund? It's a great question. It's kind of, it took a while. Like, I feel like there was a lot of different evolutions of the idea. It started as being a project that was more focused on trying to accelerate innovation by investing in people via grants. And that was something mm -hmm. that I, I did as kind of like a meta extension of getting a grant myself and then finding people that were doing weird, interesting work and giving them small checks. So that was kind of the first iteration. And that was really just trying to be a source of kind of belief capital for these people as opposed to being more like actual capital fund the thing. It's more just saying like, hey, your thing's really cool. I hope you continue to do it. And I count me in and my money is behind it. And then I did that for a while while I was doing consulting and I became a Sequoia Scout through the consulting and I realized that there was actually a lot of overlap between venture and the grant making mm -hmm. and oftentimes there was pretty clear paths between the two. So I think that that click, which was probably what the current iteration of Moth Fund is now, that came probably at like the end of 2022. I think I was mm -hmm. in in Miami and I was doing my consulting and I was talking to a lot of different people about what I wanted to do. And I had a couple conversations with friends that were just like, I think there's a lot of overlap here. What should I do? And they were like, you should try to raise a fund. So it was kind of more of like a bunch of aha moments of like, that might be there, right? But when I was looking at venture at the time, I didn't really see a lot of people doing it in a way that like I saw yeah. an immediate path to my starting up ad. So I was like, this is, this is totally different. Like they're marketing themselves as like a B2B SaaS fund or a crypto fund. And I'm not that. So it took a while. It was like a gradual growing. But I would say that the inciting incident was probably just like a lot of friend conversations, mostly dinners. <laughs> okay, wait, there's so many points that I want to like dig out of that answer. I think one of the things I'd love to start with is as you thought through, I think when we connected, so for context for our listeners, we connected when Molly posted this. <laughs> I honestly laughed when I read it. It was a study from, I think, University of Virginia or something like that. 
and it talked about how STEM glorifies young genius like no other and how oh yeah yeah how scientists have this like interesting <laughs> I, I think like the term that came to mind for me was like calcification when you get recognition really early on which happens quite often in tech and then you're forced to work on great problems instead of small problems which then became part of your thesis at moth fund is um which i'll have you talk about but i think that there is something beautiful in working in like really small constrained ideas and i think that's a theme that's been threaded throughout your work online so i'd love if you could talk a little bit more about the beauty of constraints maybe i think that how i see it is that young people in general really benefit from trying a lot of different things and actually getting just more data points on themselves and what they enjoy. And that's something that is much easier done if you are taking shots on goals that are easier to yeah. hit. <laughs> if, you, if you dedicate yourself very early on to like huge problems that have basically never been solved, I think it's really hard to get the reps in that you need for your competence to grow into something that actually makes you confident in yourself and willing to take on larger challenges. And I think that's a trap that a lot of people fall into early in their careers. They're like, well, I need to be working on the most important problem, but the most important problem is unsolved probably for a reason. <laughs> and yeah. so it's probably easier actually for you to prove to yourself of what you can do on easier problems and just get a better self-understanding before you start thinking in the terms of like, do I want to dedicate myself this this problem for 10 years? And that's something I just learned more from firsthand experience of trying a bunch of different things myself. Usually, though, it was like trying different roles in the context of companies mm -hmm. and then realizing, oh, this thing that I idealized is actually not the right fit for me. But they were the same kind of like small-scale problems that gave me a lot of self-knowledge. And I think yeah. any environment that a young person can be in that gives them those opportunities to get those shots on goal is like actually going to be a much faster path to them finding the thing that they want to devote themselves to longer. So it's actually, it's highly productive in the long term, even if it yeah. feels like you're wasting time and spinning your wheels in the short term. That's super interesting. I, I feel like it also connects a little bit to, I want to touch on this later in the episode, but imposter syndrome, because you've written about yeah. how, I think we've chatted about this before. You had this great quote on criticism. I'll read it for our listeners for context, but you said, for better or worse, almost all my accomplishments have been made possible by self-hatred. It's hard to push past mediocrity without sacrificing a certain degree of safety and that's easiest done by pulling from your card catalog of reasons why you don't deserve the luxury of comfort but relishing in self-hatred <laughs> is a slippery slope towards self-destruction whether that be from action or inaction a yeah. side note your writing is gorgeous i love oh, it thank you it's so Thanks fun to so read much. yeah i guess i'm curious like can you explore how imposter syndrome or that like paranoia of wanting to be better or the best has shown up in your work and maybe like your relationship with that? Yeah. I think I struggled for a really long time with just feeling like I was in environments that I had no business being in <laughs> and people <laughs> were taking me seriously when they shouldn't be. And I think that it was a bit magical for me coming from a background in entertainment where the culture is extremely hierarchical and you are expected to spend at least five years being a PA, like running coffees and then mm -hmm. coming to tech where it's like, as an intern, I could be leading a project and that's crazy. And they actually listen to me and like my opinion and intuition for better or worse. But I think that it definitely for a while until I had more like reps under my belt of projects I could point out and be like, hey, I did that actually. I'm yeah. not an imposter. I, it, I really, you know, I would cry sometimes. I'd just be like, I'm not up for this. I don't know the right answer. I don't want to seem stupid. But I think that it just got better. Like, it's really just something you have to get through. I think that 
there was a certain point after I started doing the consulting where I was like, actually, like, I think I've proven it enough to myself that this is a skill that I can do. And it was more the like helping founders with storytelling related projects and kind of figuring out the brand and like ways to attract top talent. And that just, it felt like there was a lot of uh, people I could turn to too that could kind of reassure me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. That I had done it. But I think I also... After that, I got a bit more stagnant and I was like, that's actually just like not enough. Like this doesn't actually feel like a real competency. It feels like something that was actually more just handed to me because of my background and the relationships I've built. But it isn't like a really strong competency that I feel really proud of. And so I got hungry to like prove myself in in larger ways, like take bigger risks. And that's actually what led me to like consider a bunch of different ideas of what I want to do. And of the ones I tried, being an investor was the one that was kind of a sleeper hit that I really, really enjoyed and kind of checked all the boxes for me. And it also, the process of fundraising has been yeah. like incredible for my imposter syndrome, like absolutely amazing because I, I didn't realize it, but the like single thing that I needed most was just like high volume rejection. Yeah, <laughs> and high you volume that. rejection does <laughs> wonders. You're like, yeah, it's amazing. Well, like a bunch of people like don't line up or don't get totally. it or yeah. what, what like, you're like, cool. And then right. every rejection after that just becomes like one on a stack of many, 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 many. And it really doesn't hurt. Like, no. Certain, you just realize well. it's a numbers game. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It hurts sometimes. <laughs> yeah. A lot of reflections, too, on like, I think I went, when I was fundraising, I went to the people that I like kind of admired most first to hear, yep. to ask them. And that was a huge mistake. I should have asked first the people that I actually just didn't care what they thought. Because then it would have hurt way less. It took me longer to fundraise because I didn't, like, prioritize well. (laughs) And I I took it to heart when people were like, you know, you shouldn't do this. Like, venture is not the right thing for a young person. And then I just had to prove to myself by doing it that I was like, actually, they're wrong. Even if I really respect them and they are amazing people and I'm lucky to have them in my corner, like, they were actually wrong and they don't have a vested interest in my long-term success. So, yeah, they actually shouldn't have any say. (laughs) So I got a little jaded, but I also think like that was really good to learn. Yeah, yeah, a little jade, you know, arguably it goes can a be long good. Way. <laughs> a little bit of spite, just a tiny, just a, tiny a little crumb. bit, highly um, motivating. <laughs> yeah. So tell me more about some of the areas that you're super excited about investing in, or where where have you been exploring yeah. recently? So I I made my first fund generalist by design because I really wanted to prove out give myself a lot of freedom to see what the patterns emerge from my investing of like what do I actually like it to invest in beyond just being like I'm a b2b SaaS fund or something like that Mm. but proof is in the pudding I usually like to invest in b2b SaaS (laughs) and (laughs) oh the tables have turned (laughs) (laughs) I know everyone could have predicted this too from like the companies I've worked at and consulted for but I think that I'm I'm much more interested in just amazing founders and I do find that, especially in the current market conditions, most of them are drawn to tackling problems that are a little bit more kind of in the area of B2B SaaS. It's like very clear how it's going to have a 10x return. But I think more specifically, I like vertical SaaS. I like FinTech. I like future of work that is more kind of category creation angle as opposed to like incremental improvement, mm-hmm. aka not notes apps. And I don't know, some other things too that are kind of, I like... AI, if it's more on the side of either aggressively vertical SaaS, basically augmented yep, by AI, yep, yep. or if it's basically creating an entirely new category. Anything in the middle that's like infrastructure or, you know, 
just like a kind of a quick way to make it make money and not yeah. invested in. So that's kind what of are, what I'm currently looking at. What are some of the most like compelling trends that you've seen in those areas that you've spent time? Anything that's really guiding like how you're thinking through them? In vertical SaaS, I think I I always just look for what are the sectors and industries that haven't been yet penetrated by software and haven't had the effect of been like massively had the coordination communication increased mm-hmm. by the benefits there. So that's pretty straightforward. In fintech, I'm very interested in specifically the trend of like the huge, whatever it is, $68 trillion wealth transfer that's coming from like boomers to mm-hmm. millennials and Gen Z. Things that are basically reinventing fintech for a younger audience because there is like a lot of more money movement there. And right. I think that new products could be built there. I'm not seeing a lot yet that is super compelling. I think that in future of work, again, yeah, I'm much more drawn to things that are, are much bigger swings at potentially like either regrouping how we think about work or media or being more kind of a vertical SaaS thing. Mm. Or they're, they're like creating new paradigms of how we interface with computing. But anything that's just like, yeah, a better, you know, Photoshop or uh, <laughs> something like yeah. that. I just don't see it. I think that this is a space that like so many tech companies have been founded in that it's just it's very oversaturated at this point to to be a bit glib. And then, yeah, in AI, again, just more category creation or vertical SaaS, basically. Yeah, that's super interesting. I feel like I spent a lot of time in vertical SaaS as well. And it's I don't know it like you said, I think it's there can be this like overwhelming narrative of like things have been done before and like every yeah. like things have risen to the point of like such high level abstraction but I feel like that's happened in very concentrated areas and there's still like a lot of industries that have not had that transformation like still very much pencil and paper I'm curious what areas in verticalized SaaS are you looking at can you share I looked a lot I am like a little biased because of my background in entertainment that I I get a lot of deal flow there and I am Mm -hmm. excited about anything (laughs) it's like vertical SaaS for entertainment I also look at just, yeah, basically anything that has proof that they've been operating on, like, pen and paper, I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah. There's some that, like, right now, I've been quite interested in, in the grant-making space and more the foundation and nonprofit world, if there's any opportunities mm. there, because I think they are usually relying on either, like, very archaic enterprise software that doesn't really work or yeah. kind of hodgepodge methods at the smaller scales. I need, um, like, a lot of context for that, having... I, actually, I'd be curious to, like... Can you walk us through a bit of like what your process of applying for a grant looked like? Because I feel like yeah. on this podcast, I talk a lot about venture and that is a source of financing. But, you know, to venture is like a very small percentage of what actually ends up funding companies. So I'd be curious to understand yeah. from a first person perspective what grant what the grant system looks like. It's weird right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think like I... So I got a grant from Emergent Ventures, and it was what inspired me to quit my job and go out on my own, basically. And that was amazing, and it kind of kickstarted my thinking about how we fund more innovation. And I was very lucky that that was kind of Tyler Cowan, the person who picks for Emergent Ventures. I got introduced to him, and it was the beauty of Emergent Ventures is it's an inc- incredibly short streamlined process and he makes the decision very quickly most grants are not like that most of them are like very long time horizons you have to like probably know the foundation already and what's nice about that program too is they fund all kinds of like weird stuff that's usually like new institutions or people that are exploring ideas or they're just promising individuals that should be given more time and not just in a boring job 
I think the more interesting work that's happening in grant making right now is more in like science funding and stuff like that. A lot of Ooh. institutions like Schmidt Futures with FROs and all these different kind of new models, as well as like mm-hmm. ARC Institute and Ben Reinhardt Speculative Technologies. These are just, they're, they're trying to basically make progress faster in different interesting ways, usually within science, mm-hmm. and oftentimes bypass the existing institutions. And I was kind of like part of that world while I was exploring grant making, but I never, I obviously didn't decide to double down on solving any part of it because I became much more interested in like the use case of me (laughs) post-college as like somebody (laughs) who knew that I wanted to start something, but I didn't know what, and I needed space to figure it out. And I, it wasn't as much a money thing as it was a confidence thing. Like I needed somebody to say, yeah, you should do that. (laughs) And for me, that was Tether Cowan. I was very lucky in that way, but I, very from like talking to a lot of people and knowing all my friends i knew that the amount of money could be scaled significantly down and it could mean probably just as much so that was kind of like one of the inspiring events for moth fund to having a small grant program in addition to the venture it's just realizing how short the gap is between a small grant and starting something that is potentially a company and so i have a small grant program i write like 5k checks that are no strings attached to people that are just exploring interesting work that may go on to found a company in the future, but more it's me betting on them. And I usually try to find them when they're in like high school or college. Yeah, that's super cool. Have As you've like, I think when we first met, you were like exploring the model. Can you talk a little bit about what that model looks like in practice or perhaps like the graduation from grants to like a full check from the fund? I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, it's a huge open question now because the fund's so new. But I think that it, it's something that it, for me feels like a long-term bet of if I find an amazing person and they are young and interesting and I see a glimmer in their eye that I want to to shine a light on, I want to bring them in close and I want to have a method and apparatus to do so. And my grant program is that. So there is no like, I don't have any graduation stories yet, but I have a group of people that are awesome and I will bring to a retreat every year probably indefinitely. And, And if they ever do start something, I would love to potentially fund it. There's no like actual contractual obligation on their side or mine, but it's more just like building the relationship and supporting them. And I think it's more just about the friendship and connections than anything else. And the grant is just like a nice byproduct. It's like an invitation to the community and kind of like yeah, blue. Yeah. What is, I guess like to get to like the more logistics of it, what is your, what does your process look like for, you know, you meet someone all the way up to okay, now they have a grant. How do you think about supporting them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like highly bespoke. It's more just oftentimes like we text a lot. <laughs> we have calls, we send me updates, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that I'm very inspired by like early YC and the way that Jessica and Paul fostered a feeling of family. And obviously like I'm not in person with these people. They're all over the world, but I would love to support them in a way that makes them feel comfortable telling me anything and I can just help them navigate the venture landscape if they care to do so, or even just the career landscape and like personal development as well. So it's more just kind of like, I'm, I'm here to help in any way, answer any questions, talk anytime. And I actually think that that at the earliest stages is the most valuable thing you can do. It's just be a sounding board that is feel safe. And I think especially since I'm not like a traditional investor in these people, it, it yeah. feels even safer because it's like I, I gave you money without anything <laughs> like you. There's no obligation that you need to stick to any project or anything like that. I'm betting on you very explicitly. And that is like kind of the the thesis behind Moth Funds. It's like I'm just trying to bet on exceptional individuals, both with grants 
very early and with venture dollar for amazing founders. And I usually define like my taste in people as being, they're kind of T-shaped. Usually they have like a core competency that has, you know, instilled them with a certain confidence in themselves because they mm -hmm. have been obsessed with something for a while and proven that they can get really good at it. And, and then, but then they also fuse that with, I like people that have more of an unconventional background. So maybe a little bit more multidisciplinary, they come from an uncommon area. And so that creates the more like generalist T-shaped formation. And I like that specifically because I think that they are usually much more creative in their approach to solving whatever thing yeah. that they're tackling. I think creativity is usually just not connecting old ideas from disparate places in unconventional ways. And so people that very clearly have that kind of background are highly compelling to me as founders, especially when they're trying to kind of like disrupt an industry or make it radically better. And then I also have kind of like a, I get very in the weeds on uh, human like, <laughs> it's kind of psychobabble, but like, the, <laughs> I think that that like market founder fit is a very real thing. And if someone is trying to like create a new category or something dramatically different, they should have a bias more towards truth and just bringing this thing into existence over social cohesion versus mm -hmm. if they're more a vertical SaaS founder, I do like people that are more social cohesion driven and they, they are better at building relationships and just kind of embedding themselves in an ecosystem and they are going to mm. be that bliss site. They're not going to have the same contrarian energy because that's actually just not helpful in a lot yeah. of areas where it's more relationship driven as vertical SaaS often is. That's so, super anyway. interesting. I like that delineation No, I, I love that. Okay, I have two more questions for you, but do you have any questions for me before I hop into those as we're wrapping up? You're great. This is awesome. Okay, cool. So my my next one, or I guess I'll rephrase that as like, is there anything that you're curious to ask me? Like sometimes I'll ask like the folks that I interview if you, you have any questions like for me. Mm, that's a good question. Well, I'm more just curious about how you are and how things are going and all that kind of stuff. But I, I'm actually curious, maybe like a good question. What do you wish that you had known about venture at the early stages? Like going into this, what, what are your reflections at a highest level? Mm. I think one of the one of the points that you brought up earlier was really interesting in terms of like you'll get advice from people that you admire and based on your context it might not be the best advice and I yes. think this is especially interesting having invested over a handful of different trend cycles I think when I was raising our first fund there was more of like oh, yeah, we could invest in that space. Like, it's like, okay, like, there are certain spaces that we're willing to explore and we'll make it a bigger part of the narrative. But, like, at the end of the day, like, we'll make a handful of investments. But is that really a core aspect of our fund? And so I think there's this interesting delineation of now I'm going to be more, I would say, like, disciplined and, like, we invest in the future of play and the future of work. And we're going to have a couple investments that are just kind of weird and out there. And that's the way I like to invest. <laughs> And I'm not going to, I, I would say like AI is an interesting one. Like you mentioned AI and like applied companies. Like I'm not going to say like our whole fund is like pivoting that way. It's definitely an area and an undercurrent that we're exploring. But I think earlier on I would have been like, like it was more fluid. And I think that that was one of the things that I wish I had known a bit earlier on is just to trust my gut instinct more and maybe incorporate less feedback i would say yeah. there's definitely like incredible pieces of feedback that i got early on i think some of the most important ones were like not benchmarking based on my age like i'm young but i'm gonna get older and it's not a defensible thing to be like young <laughs> yeah. by definition 
And so I think trying to build an investment thesis from the ground up based on first principles, that was like really helpful. Mm. But I think from a thesis perspective, I I think you and I share this is like because we have a different perspective, we're going to see things that other people don't see and we might not have the language for that yet. And so I think that if I could go back, I would tell myself to like, be patient because the language will arise. I feel like that happened yeah. with generative AI. Yeah. There was like five companies that we invested in that ended up being in generative AI, but there wasn't a words or language for that really when we made the investment. So I think, yeah, the language will arise. Great about that. I really like that. Those are great reflections. Thanks. Yeah, maybe yeah. I will. Okay, I have two more questions as we wrap up. What has most impacted your taste in ideas? Ooh, that's a good one. Those I stole from you, by the way, <laughs> if it sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm complimenting my own question. Let's see. I think that it, there was a few like market points. One of them was when I went to college. I went to NYU and I studied film first. And I, I actually, I, I liked my mandatory writing class way more than I liked my film classes. Mm-hmm. And they just had us write so many essays. And it was basically just like, liberal arts education on how to write really good argumentative essays that were expository about the world and media and human beings. And I had an amazing teacher and I just became obsessed with it. And I think that the, all the readings that he exposed me to in that class have had a huge impact on my worldview. I think that my favorite book came out of that class and it's a book called Ways of Seeing by John Berger. And it's just basically about like kind of the meta of like how we see ourselves in the world and the lenses through which we we kind of view reality and how they can be shifted. And I found that very interesting. I think it's a theme that I explore a lot in my writing. And it's also kind of just like how I interact at a meta level with founders. And plus, I just trying to understand like how they see the world and like create a mental model so that I can try to predict how they would deal with the inevitable things that might arise. And and so I think that that definitely had a huge impact on my on my taste and ideas, which just being in that class and being exposed to all these amazing authors and and just writing a ton and realizing that it's just a repetition thing and you have to write all the time. And then I think another huge influence on my ideas was actually my first manager in in tech when I worked at Figma. Her name is Brie Wolfson and she's wonderful and she started uh, Wait, she was your press. first manager? Yeah, I was That's so That's so cool. She's amazing. But she she definitely like I think we came from kind of similar similar liberal artsy-ish mm-hmm. backgrounds and had similar taste in books and aesthetics and all that kind of stuff. And she gave me a lot of recommendations that really kind of became tentpoles of my understanding of the tech world. And they were often like hologram essays and all that kind of stuff. But she also, you know, would throw in ones that were more kind of liberal artsy and stuff of that sort. And I I think that kind of shaped my taste in what can, how ideas can be packaged within tech. And it helped me like have a consulting practice in the future and all that kind of stuff where I kind of specialized in that kind of thing, where how do we make it make a talent brand project or something of that sort compelling both at an intellectual level and also at a heart level. So it's like mm-hmm. moving both heart and mind. So I think that those were the two ones, but I'm sure I'll have a couple more in the coming years. And I, I feel like they're they're kind of like percolating in the background. Lots of the people that I work with now are really exceptional as well. I love that. In other words, the tent poles of your understanding are being built as you're learning. And the language the <laughs> exactly. language will arise. Like the tent poles. Um, yeah, yeah, precisely. I love that. Okay, last question. Whose words echo for you? Mm. I have been reading 
Anna Karenina recently, so Tolstoy. Oh. <laughs> but oh. also, I think Tolstoy I echoing. <laughs> I feel like he echoes Tolstoy himself echo. respectfully. He really does. He he kind of like echoes on the page. Yeah, I was going to say he says like the same thing over, 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 over. So I think it's like <laughs> kind like kind of has to echo for you. <laughs> yeah, it kind of kind of does. But I think more at a mentor level, I think there's been a lot of people that have really kind of echoed in my brain long after our conversations ended. I think that Daniel Gross is one. And then I think for like writing, I think definitely Brie, um, as well as I had a writing coach for a time and his name was Sasha and he, his words definitely continue to echo in my brain. And yeah, lots of other areas, more like friendships as well. There's certain people that I just think are exceptionally wise, but they're kind of quiet ghosts. <laughs> I love that. Well, Molly, thank you so much for joining us. I'll leave your socials down below so folks can follow you after. But I so enjoyed this. Thanks so much for coming on. Me too. Super, super fun. Special thank you to producer Riley Jennings and podcast editor Tate Doherty for your help on this episode. If you're listening and you'd like to connect to me, follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn page finn with three n's thanks again for listening i really appreciate it you can look out for new episodes every monday at 5 p.m pst and if you'd like to learn more about the strategies and tactics of seasoned institutional investors and rising venture stars check out our youtube channel at seed to harvest also my tiktok channel seed to harvest where i post a lot of behind the scenes um and if you like this episode please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast if that's on apple or spotify anyways thank you so much for listening i hope you have an awesome rest of your day